This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. June 11th is the 150th anniversary of Richard Strauss's birth, an occasion to celebrate and also to raise questions about the composer and his actions during the Nazi era. Strauss accepted a high-profile job from the Nazis. He wrote music for them, and he wrote at least one letter pledging his loyalty to Hitler. But Strauss's defenders note that he eventually quit the position the Nazis gave him and that he may have helped save several Jewish lives later in the war. To help us sort through this, we're joined on the line by Eric Levy, author of Mozart and the Nazis and Music in the Third Reich, and by Brian Gilliam, a professor of music at Duke University who's written several books about Strauss. Eric from the University of London. Your book on Mozart and the Nazis was subtitled How the Third Reich Abused a Musical Icon. Was Richard Strauss abused or co-opted or what? Well, of course, when the Nazis came to power in 1933 and they wanted to uh, create a kind of aura of intellectual respectability, particularly amongst the rather deflated music profession at that time, the, the most important living composer was Richard Strauss, so obviously to get in his good books was a, a tremendous publicity coup for them. But in a sense, of course, later on, he was abused, he was utilized, he became a puppet of, of the regime. But initially, of course, he was an enthusiastic advocate. Remember that we, we were experiencing in the 20s a period of tremendous sort of e- economic fluctuation with a lot of composers uh, on the breadline and uncertainty about the future. And what Strauss wanted to do was to bring stability to the composing profession, and this is what was promised to him by the Nazi regime. Brian, as a Strauss biographer, did you find him sympathetic to Nazi ideology, or was he, as Eric has just said, motivated by wanting to get some stability? Well, he didn't have a high opinion of the Weimar regime, Things were falling apart. Things that were promised him didn't come through. And he saw a kind of a, an administration of the arts that was in chaos. The Weimar regime. regime. So a new regime came in. And he didn't know how long it was going to be. He saw an opportunity for stability. But when it comes to Nazi ideology, I wouldn't say he was pro-Nazi ideology. He was pro-Richard Strauss ideology. He was an opportunist and... I don't think he was ever excited about any government. He'd be excited about a government that allowed him to do things, that gave him opportunities for work and commissions and the like, but his ideology was Richard Strauss. Now, there is an exception here, and that is his son, Franz, was enthusiastic. He did believe in the Nazis. He did believe that they were going to bring peace and unity to Europe. And I say this only because Strauss and his son argued all the time. So Strauss did things to better himself. There's no doubt about it. He took that position with his eyes wide open. He was uh, supporting an illegal thug regime. He was a snob, and as a result, didn't give two hoots about it. He thought anti-Semitism was for the working class kind of mentality. But if that came with it, it came with it. So this wasn't like when the Nazis co-opted Wagner, who was dead at the time, of course, but he had famously anti-Semitic views. Wagner did, of course. Right. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, the propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, made Strauss president of the Reichsmusikkammer, the official music 
bureau of the Third Reich. Right, it's true. Why did Strauss take that post? Power. He felt that uh, he could be in touch with the art scene in Germany, that he could further himself, and it is a blemish that will continue to haunt him for the rest of his life. It was a huge mistake. Eric, what is your sentiment on... Well, I think, um, like Brian, I, I, I think he actually saw it as an opportunity. He wanted to protect composers' rights, and he saw uh, this uh, position. He'd been, in a way, kind of isolated, even though he was the most famous composer in Germany in the 20s. But he wasn't the center of, uh, the epicenter of new music, cutting edge of new music uh, at that time. He was not really associated, for example, with all the festivals of the uh, International uh, Society for Contemporary Music, that kind of thing. So this opportunity arose in, in 1933, and he seized it with open arms. But as Brian says, it was really uh, self-promotion rather than sincere belief in the cause. Of course, there are some embarrassing letters which came up for, for auction which show him being kind of almost obsequious. What, what sorts of things did he write? Well, he said, you know, I'm grateful to you for all that you, you're doing to save us from the the regrettable democratic uh, chaos of the Weimar Republic. And, you know, I'm now organizing a composer's concert, uh, which I hope the highest officials from the Reich will attend and support. That that took place in uh, the Philharmonie, the uh, the Berlin Philharmonic Hall in February 1934. The music that Strauss composed for the Third Reich includes a hymn for the 1936 Olympics, so after he had resigned from that position? That was commissioned in 1931. That's right, yes. Okay. uh, The Nazis came to power in 1933. Yeah. He'd been already commissioned. Yeah. I mean, he didn't, he didn't share much enthusiasm for the idea of writing a, something for a sporting event, but he obviously, as Brian says, he was quite uh, keen to promote himself, and obviously a big uh, event like the Berlin Olympic Games was, was an event where he could obviously uh, occupy center stage. It's a piece of jobbery, really. It's not an important work in, in Strauss's output. I would, certainly wouldn't call it a, a Nazi piece. It was described in the, in the Nazi press as a sort of monumental work, which uh, I suppose went hand-in-hand hand with the idea of what uh, good German music should be. The fellow who wrote the poem was actually a socialist. That's right. He was yeah. uh, half-Jewish. It was an odd... How did that slip past the Nazis? Well, he, he sat next to Hitler. Can you imagine a half-Jew sitting next to Hitler... <laughs> for the ceremony, because he was the poet of this anthem. Remember, it was, it was not commissioned by the Germans. It was commissioned by the International Olympic mm. Committee. The yeah. Olympics, as you know, is an international organization. And in fact, the irony of this is that as the Nazis were forming in their early years, they were terribly nationalistic. They were the national socialists. Mm. And Hitler was not very big on... He had, at one time thought of not even having the Olympics. He wasn't prepared to have such a huge internationalist assembly when he's trying to shore up his nationalist ideologies. And it took some persuading for him finally to have an internationalist setting in this very nationalist state. Strauss also wrote a song that he dedicated to Josef Goebbels, Das Bächlein, The Brook. That's true. Why did he write that? Well, I think it was a common courtesy when given a kind of post that he would, you know, it was a, maybe a traditional thing that he would write a, a work of, of, of genuine thanks. I mean, the most embarrassing bit of that very delightful song, actually, it's a beautiful song, but the most embarrassing bit is the, is the last line, the melisma of the word Führer. Führer. Führer, yeah, which he, 
he sort of develops in a kind of uh, ecstatic way, which of course has slightly uncomfortable resonances. Uh, there's another piece that probably should be brought up here because it came up in the newspaper. Uh, he wrote a little ditty for Minister Frank. That's right. Yeah. Hans Frank. Yeah, that was just performed Eric, recently. I, yes, I don't know. Yes, it's it was. been around for a long time. This was published in facsimile in the New York in the Los Angeles Times in 1945, and it's a little ditty that uh, praises Frank. It's a little six-line rhyme. Minister Frank, as most of your listeners probably know, was the butcher of Warsaw. He was the governor of Warsaw, committed some heinous crimes, of which I don't believe that Strauss knew. He was a music lover, and what he did that Strauss was so thankful for were two things. One, he allowed for Alice, the daughter-in-law, not to be deported. Strauss's daughter-in-law, who was Jewish. He allowed for her not to be deported to a camp. And two, uh, the children were taken out of the schools and forced to wear the Jewish star. And then he signed a letter saying that they did not have to wear the star and they could come back to school. And then I guess there was a third thing. When the war was really moving in a bad direction for Germany in 1943, they wanted to quarter troops in Strauss's home. And Frank had disallowed that. He said no quartering of troops in Strauss's home. So it was in thanks for those items that he wrote this little embarrassing ditty. Did Strauss ever repudiate his connection to the Nazis? Well, of course, um, he, 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 um, there's a famous letter to Stefan Zweig uh, in 1935, which was sent to the Gestapo, which was intercepted. There was this um, embarrassing moment for, for the authorities in Dresden when his new opera, The Silent Woman, was to be um, performed, and Strauss asked to see the playbill, which normally in, in Germany you have both the librettist and the composer's name on the on the poster. He noticed that they'd just written Richard Strauss, but not Stefan Zweig, because Stefan Zweig was Jewish, and his name wasn't on the poster. And he, he threatened at that moment to cancel the whole production if, if Zweig's name wasn't put back onto the playbill. And there's a whole extensive correspondence, which I'm sure Brian can uh, expand upon, but um, in one letter he said, you know, I'm just pretending to be the right music camera. Do you really think I, I believe all this nonsense? So he was already kind of, in his private letters, being contemptuous. The important thing for Strauss was that, was that letter was, was opened uh, and sent directly to Hitler, and it's, from, it's at that moment that he was forced to resign. All of Strauss's wartime activities came out during his post-war denazification hearing, and he came away from that with no official taint. Did the hearing clarify things? Uh, it did clarify things. Let me just put it this way for your listeners. Here is a man who had made a firm decision, and that was he was not going to emigrate. And Strauss said, basically, if I go to America, I'll die. Ooh. What I, I, I can only compose, what orchestras are going to play my music, what opera houses are going to put on my works. Now, I know Lionel Barrymore offered his home to him after the war was over, but he still said, no, I'm going to stay in Europe. He was a real European. Yeah. And I also think you need to look at statistics here because the uh, number of performances of, say, Arabella um, in the Third Reich exceed any other um, new opera produced during that time. 
So, you know, true, just true. simply from the point of view of revenue, um, given the number of opera houses that were in, in Germany and then the Greater German Reich, it would have been inconceivable for Strauss to have the same kind of um, prominence outside, despite his, uh, you know, celebrity status. And he probably knew what had happened to, to Schoenberg, for example, and he may have known that it was, how difficult it had been for Schoenberg to and start remember, a he new career. Years, he was 10 years older than Schoenberg. He was an old man. Yeah. It's a lot to pull up your stakes. Should we feel in any way morally compromised when we enjoy music that Strauss wrote under the Nazi regime, when he was, you know, Arabella was getting so many performances? That is an excellent question. And I say that we need to get our ideologies away from music. Let me give you an example. Um, You have a composer such as Anton von Webern, viewed as the purity of the post-war era. He had Darmstadt, and he was held up as the great composer of the new generation because of his very scientific, positivistic, 12-tone methods that were worshipped by Milton Babbitt and people like that. Now, he was an affirmed fascist. He read Mein Kampf with great joy. He comments on it. He even applauded the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But if we were to have a conversation on this radio station about Webern, I doubt that we'd be talking about Webern's Nazi sympathies. And that is because a number of things get into this question. It's not just politics. It's the politics of tonality. It's the jealousy of a composer who's extremely prolific. And so it's, it's a thicket of jealousy, of musical style, of politics, both musical and social. So it's, it's a very difficult issue. And Strauss was not the kind of guy who uh, would slap you on the back and try to be your friend. He was very aloof felt the music should speak for itself. He wasn't that a friendly person. Eric, what do you think? No, I, I share Brian's view, actually. I think that uh, we have to divorce the music from the man. I mean, some people in, in history, you know, past composers have been terribly unpleasant people with very unpleasant views. I mean, Chopin was anti-Semitic, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy his music. Um, uh, even Tchaikovsky made some pretty horrible remarks about certain colleagues. It is a thicket, really. Of, of uh, and It is a I, thicket. Yeah. I, I also think that, you know, one thing we need to mention to the listeners is the kind of realization right at the end of the war with uh, a work like Metamorphose, where you really sense the agony and the, the grief for the destruction of Germany. And the destruction of Germany was, was, was wrought by, by Hitler, and his, his gang, as it were. And, and this music really just speaks to the heart in a way. Uh, few other works of the, uh, of the 20th century do. It's more, one might argue that some of the works that he wrote in the 20s and 30s were, in a sense, marking time, but suddenly this kind of eruption of emotion and the, the destruction of the opera houses and the kind of total chaos suddenly right. brought uh, uh, Strauss to, not to, I wouldn't say to his senses, but he suddenly uh, created something incredibly moving and emotional. To the question um, of music and politics, is there an analogy that can be drawn today with, say, Gustavo Dudamel and his interaction with the repressive Venezuelan regime, <laughs> or with Valery Gergiev and his interaction with Putin and his regime? 
either of those resonate with this? Well, they're both both of those, of course, uh, are conductors rather than composers. Composers. It, 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 it makes it a bit more difficult to draw parallels. I know in England, for example, that obviously uh, with the situation in Ukraine at the moment, that uh, Gergiev's stock, I mean, he's still the principal conductor of the LSO, but I think his stock is much lower. And I notice it actually in in the way that his, mu- his performances are now more heavily criticized than they were before. But why should composers be he- he- heroes any more than anybody else? I think, why do we put them on a pedestal? We seem to think they've, they've got some kind of godlike status, but they're just human beings, and human beings will act in a, um, a way to protect their own families. They, you know, in this case, Strauss wanted to protect his own family, and he wanted to be... Um, he didn't want to move because he was happy uh, being in Germany. He, he had some kind of principles in terms of that he wanted to serve the composing profession, and that was, in a way, heroic. And he saw an opportunity with the Nazis to uh, establish that. But uh, I think to... I don't find anything heroic about Strauss, but as a musician, I am absolutely mesmerized by one of the most brilliant musical geniuses of the 20th century. And, you know, this idea of the obligation of an artistic individual, it's a romantic concept. We don't think about that kind of stuff with Haydn and Mozart, do we? No. No, it's It's true. Uh, Thank you very much, both of you, for your insights. Thank you. Very good. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were music historian Eric Levy and Strauss historian Brian Gilliam. You can get all of our Strauss coverage at wqxr.org slash Strauss. Brian Wise is our producer. Jason Isaac was our engineer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.